Hebrews 13, 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have, no, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the living God. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, we have almost come to the end of uh, this wonderful book of Hebrews, this uh, letter of uh, word of exhortation as he writes there in chapter 13, verse 22. Um, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. This letter, this book has been or is a word of exhortation. It's a letter that is supposed to edify. It's a book that is supposed to encourage. It's a book that's supposed to challenge and to uh, comfort, spur you on uh, for the life of a Christian. Uh, the author, you know this, was writing a letter to Christians who were uh, sagging in their faith. Uh, they were becoming uh, weary of the Christian life. Uh, they were tired of fighting sin. Uh, they were tired with dealing with the sin of others. They were dealing with the sin of themselves. And so their faith began to sag. They were being persecuted, uh, probably not overtly at this point, but uh, maybe um, socially, perhaps economically. Uh, we learn from chapter 10. And so uh, God writes this letter to this, this young church uh, saying to press on. And uh, the primary argument the author employs to get this church and you and me to press on in the Christian life is the glory and excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ. For 12 chapters, uh, the author lays out um, just the majesty and beauty and excellency of Christ and his person and his work of redemption. I hope that you were inspired by those 12 chapters and the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. If you were not, I urge you to go back and read and to get inspired. But the second way the author employs or the second argument he employs to get you and I to press on is not only to stand pat in where you're at, to um, believe what you believe and remain there in sound doctrine, but um, instead of drifting away and, and remaining faithful where you are, the second argument he employs is actually to continue to press on, to go this way, to move to Christ, 
to move to what is hard and um, what is uncomfortable and perhaps what is dangerous. And we learn from chapter 10 uh, that they did that and joyfully, um, uh, what does it say, accepted the plundering of their property. In other words, they not only remained where they were doctrinally, but experientially they moved closer to Christ instead of drifting away and losing their faith or committing apostasy. And so we find ourselves in chapter 13 and the author says, um, we're going to do this again. Uh, you need to move to Christ outside the camp, not remain here, but you need to go closer to Jesus and you're only going to do that by being strengthened by grace. If you try to do that by your effort on your own merit, you're going to fail. And so the author says you need to know Christ and you need to be strengthened by grace so that you can go outside the camp and know Christ deeper in his sufferings. And my prayer is that this message today, or rather this text today, would change a life or two today. That you would be so strengthened by the grace of Christ, some of you may make different decisions for the future than you have right now. So, with that, we'll begin with uh, point number one, be strengthened by grace. You need to be strengthened by grace. Uh, verse 9, do not uh, be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Uh, so, do, do, don't be uh, carried off by false doctrine. Don't be led astray. Uh, don't be swept away by strange and diverse teachings. Don't, don't let the undercurrent of false teaching sweep you downstream into some place that is unhealthy apart from Christ. And I think that phrase, diverse and strange teachings, is in contrast to the phrase in verse 7, of the Word of God. So the author says, or God says, wants you to establish yourself in the Word of God. Verse 7, ground yourself in the Gospel, who Christ is, what He's done, so that you're not swept away or led away by diverse and strange teachings. Don't let them do that, but rather be established in the Word of God, grounded in the Gospel. So don't be led away. Don't be carried off. For, here's your reason, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. <laughs> Love that phrase. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. 
And I take that to mean that these strange teachings involved their view of food somehow. That's how I read that. Why would he bring up food? It just comes out of nowhere. Right? Food? What are we talking about here? I think what he's arguing is there, there was something about what these early Christians were thinking about the power and value of food that would get them to run the Christian life well. Perhaps it was a Jewish ceremonial law that if they continued in the feast, that would somehow give them inner power. It would strengthen their heart to run well. And God says, that's not how your heart, your inner man, is made strong. Now, I don't think we struggle with the particulars here of perhaps a Jewish ceremonial uh, meal. But frankly, beloved, I think we hear similar things today about the power and value and promise of food. There is fat-free this and sugar-free that. Yes, I'm going here. Keto, paleo, vegan, I warned you. Vitamins, no carbs, high fats, organic this, non-GMO that. I'm not even sure what that stands for. Fast at this time, but not at that time. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes these become obsessive. They take on a life-consuming importance. And slowly and subtly, the promises foods make, and I love food, make or become the promises we hope in and live by. Have you ever talked to somebody with an eating disorder? It's more than just food. And God says that's not how the inner man is strengthened. Your heart, God says, is made strong by eating grace. Not food. Let me throw out a couple of questions. Are we as obsessive about grace as we are about our nutrition? Do we hope in, hope in and live by the promises of grace as much as we do the promises of food? I don't know the particulars here. But I, knew, I do know the time in which we live. 
maybe the reason we feel so crummy in life is not due to our diet, but because our souls are starving. And so the author says, well, where is this, where is this spiritual food to be found, this, this grace-filled food that you speak of? And he says in verse 10, look at it, we have an altar, something to eat at, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. In other words, unlike the priests who go to that altar still in the temple for their food, thinking that there's some power there to run the Christian life, the author says we Christians go to a real altar. We have an altar too. But this altar gives real power. And it's not the altar that those priests go to because they reject Christ. Our altar, the author says, to strengthen our hearts to feast on grace is the cross of Christ. That's where the meal of grace is served. Implication for us? Go and feast. Look at the cross. Behold the Put it in these terms, the dish of divine love and feast shown and shed for you at Calvary in Jesus Christ, but promised to you an election. Before you've done anything good or bad, there is divine love. There is the dish of grace right there for you and I to feast on. Go feast on that dish. And there is the dish of Omnipotent justice. You pick. There is justice. Slaying the Lamb of God in the sinner's stead. What, what dish do you want? Jesus says. What dish will, will strengthen your soul? Is it, is it victory? Is it heavenly victory you need to, to be strengthened to live this Christian life? Is that what you need? Then behold the resurrection, rising from the dead. Jesus prevailing over his enemies and ruling in the midst of them. What is it that you need, Christian? What is it that you need? And God says here, go feast on Christ. Look, you want to take care of your body and be wise with that? Go do it to the glory of God. Go do it to the glory of God, but feed your soul the grace and the cross of Christ. This is why Jesus said, is it not in John 7, that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's the banner that waves over Calvary. That's the meal. Come, it's an invitation. Come and drink of Christ and satisfy your soul for the Christian life and be strengthened to go outside the camp one day and testify of Christ and join him in his sufferings. So eat the glory of God before you eat your spinach and paleo bars. All right? I don't even know if paleo comes in bars, but maybe they do. So be strengthened by grace. You're going to need to be strengthened by grace because there's an exhortation coming. 
All right? Number two, go to Jesus outside the camp. Go to Jesus outside the camp. Verses 11 and 12, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Congregation, what the author is describing here in verse 11 is the day of atonement. The bodies of the bull and um, the goat was brought into the altar right outside the most holy place and the holy place, and they would be slaughtered by the high priest. He would then take the blood and in a basin, he would walk into the holy place, into the most holy place and sprinkle um, the blood on the furniture inside that place as a testimony of God's holiness, but also a testimony of the forgiveness sinners need in Christ. So that's what it is talking about in verse 11 when it says that those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So that bull and goat, after being slaughtered, would be brought by the priest outside the camp where it is dangerous, where it's the wilderness, it's unclean, It's uncomfortable, and those sacrifices are burned there. Those animals are consumed with fire outside the camp. And that day, that ceremony of the Day of Atonement was instituted by God to typify or foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ and His work of redemption. Which is why the author says in verse 12, look at it, So, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. So, Jesus is the final and perfect fulfillment of this bull and goat. He's slaughtered on Calvary. He suffers. Yes, by the hands of men, but as the hymn says, the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. He suffers there at Calvary under the white hot justice of God in love. If you can picture that, Jesus is hanging there in love, wearing your sin in the sinner's stead, and he's suffering God's justice upon sin. And he's not inside the walls of the city. He's outside where people die, where it's uncomfortable, where it's cursed, where it's wretched. He suffers outside the gate. Why? In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus hangs there at Calvary 
to sanctify the people, his own people, you and me, to purchase us, to, to set us apart, to make us his own, to sanctify us, to have our names, as it says in Isaiah, written on his hands. That's why he's there. That's why he did what he did outside the camp. If you're not a Christian today, this is the best message you could ever hear. God hanging for sinners, dying in your stead. Leave your life of sin and turn to Christ. Don't die in your sin. Have Jesus set you apart in his blood. His blood is sufficient for the sinner. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. That's the day of atonement. And Jesus is there to sanctify you. I'm often asked sometimes, when did you get saved, Ryan? I think I've said this before. I said, sometimes I'll say, 2,000 years ago. When Christ bled for me, and he bled for you. For God has done with the law weakened by the flesh. Isn't this amazing words in Romans 8? God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Praise, praise God. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he can him sin in the flesh. He was burned up by the wrath of God in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. <laughs> Praise God. That's the gospel and so the only uh, right response of or to the gospel is verse 13. And this is your main command of the passage. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. I read stuff like that and I get, I get so provoked. Jesus did not die so that you and I could stay here. Jesus died so that you would go outside the camp and be with him. One of the implications of that is to testify to Christ outside the gate, outside these walls. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured to leave the safe confines of your life and join Jesus in his sufferings. He died so that you would go to him where he is, to what is uncomfortable and full of reproach. If that means crossing the nations, then you need to go. I hope this, one day, I hope this, this room here is empty one day. And I'm out of a job because everyone's gone. If that means crossing the city, then you need to go. 
and testify to Christ. Be not ashamed of the gospel, beloved, and bear the reproach of a Christian. Bear the reproach of a Christian. We've seen this before in chapter 10. Turn there with me. Chapter 10, verse 34. And I will start in verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The reason these Christians went to prison and were not ashamed of Christians and the reason they suffered affliction was because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one waiting for them in glory. In the midst of your life of working and parenting and all the rest gives glory to God in as much as this does. And all the rest, all I urge us today, all I'm saying is to go outside the camp at some point in your life and join Jesus in suffering as you testify to the name. Chapter 11, verse 24 to 25, 25, 26. Chapter 11, 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses could have been Pharaoh. If there was ever a time to establish Christendom on the earth, Moses was your man. Let's let's do this law thing throughout the world. Moses says, nope. Verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking forward to the reward. Same thing as chapter 10. They're all future-oriented. They all strengthened by grace because they've been eating at the cross. They all go outside the camp and consider their lives as nothing to be mistreated with Christ and with His people. Why? Because they have a heavenly homeland. I learned a Latin phrase this week. Theologia viatorum. Theology of pilgrims. That's what we need today. That's the Christian life. We are sojourners. You understand that? We are pilgrims. Theologia viatorum. We march on as pilgrims for Christ's sake. Back to chapter 13. And what is the reason we do what we do to go outside the camp? We've seen this before. We just read it. Verse 14. Here we we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. How about that? (laughs) 
The reason we go and join Jesus is because when we go, we're not leaving home. We're getting closer to our real home. That's why we go. That's why you go and testify of Christ. You're getting closer to your real home. You're not leaving it. Well, beloved, let me um, let me give to you a quote here from Jeremy Walker. It's an extended quote. Hear this. It is too easy to assume a bunker mentality with regard to the local church. Okay, Pastor Walker, you got my attention. We try to keep the world at bay and perhaps assume that within the sealed confines of the congregation, we can preserve ourselves intact without needing to come into contact with the world. But we cannot breed Christians by natural means. Neither will we see the church grow as it should through ready-packed Christians simply wandering in one day to fill the pews. You know what he's saying? You want to you grow the church by Reformed Baptists just walking in, the, walking in those doors? I don't. I don't. If the church of Christ is to survive and thrive, if there is to be a gospel witness in the places where God has put us through many decades yet to come, if there are to be faithful men and women who will carry the torch when we have gone, then it will only be as we preach Christ and Him crucified beyond the nice, safe confines of our own families and the four walls of a church building. If we want our churches to be faithful, thriving, growing churches, and I know you want this one to be, it must happen through the conversion of sinners. That will come to pass only in so far as you and I undertake our undeniable obligation to teach sinners God's ways. And all the challenges that entails and with all the problems it will bring as men and women come in with their worldly baggage, the clutter of false religion or the dross of a nominal Christianity. Ew. Nevertheless, the primary means by which our churches will be sustained through time is Jesus Christ using our efforts to teach sinners God's ways and Him blessing those endeavors. Yes, yes, yes. A couple of questions to close. Do you have a desire for the long-term good of this church? Thank you. Do you have a commitment to the church's witness to Christ, not just in your generation of Christians, but for years to come? Yes. That witness is at stake with regard to this undeniable obligation of going outside the camp and testifying of Christ and joining Him, joyfully receiving or joyfully accepting the plundering of our property.
The gospel advances as sinners are saved by grace. Tell others what great things the Lord has done for them and how he has compassion on them. And they, in turn, find the joy of sins forgiven and embrace the same privilege. I'm not asking you to be a preacher or a pastor. I'm not asking that. All I'm asking is for you to recognize that you're already an ambassador. That's what you are. That's what you are. And my prayer is that you would be so strengthened by the grace of Christ that you go across the city or perhaps across the nations and join Jesus in suffering and testifying of the cross of Christ. What else should we be talking about with others? Let's pray. Our great God, we are humbled at what you have done for us in Christ. This message of the gospel, it's so deep and so profound. And I pray that this church might know it so well that you provoke us to make that call to the friend, to make that walk across the street to the neighbor, to go across the college campus, and on and on and on, to join Jesus outside the camp. All for your glory's sake. There are elect in this city. There are elect. We know there are. And may we venture all for Christ's sake. May we venture all for Christ's sake to go get them. It's in Christ's name. Amen.